0: for having me. I'm just going to try sharing my screen here. Can you all see this? Yep, it's working. Yes, it's perfect. Then I will get started. Uh well, uh my name is Jackson Beck and I'm a program associate with the Vera Institute, which is a national nonprofit organization that works to end mass criminalization and incarceration across the criminal legal and immigration systems through research technical assistance and advocacy. And I've been with FIRA for about four years. And most of my work has focused on the intersection of policing and behavioral health from looking at opportunities to improve police responses to researching how communities can reduce police involvement in crisis situations where that's possible. Today's presentation builds on a report my colleagues and I at FIRA published in fall 2020 entitled Behavioral Health Crisis Alternatives shifting from police to community responses. And ultimately the big idea behind the report is that serving people in crisis should be a community-wide effort rather than something that police primarily shoulder themselves as default first responders. So first to roadmap this presentation a bit, I'm going to ground our conversation by briefly explaining the over-reliance on police and crisis response and why it's a problem. Um, Next, I'll summarize the three case studies we featured in our report, including Eugene, Oregon, Olympia, Washington, and Phoenix, Arizona. Then briefly, I'll share some additional information about other emerging programs. There's a lot to say about all the programs and places I'm covering today, and local conditions are always evolving, but I'm going to do my best to highlight some of the key details. And finally, I'm hoping we have plenty of time for Q&A so we can discuss the challenges and opportunities around making the shift. So briefly, as you all know, communities lack comprehensive services often to address behavioral health needs before, during and after a crisis. And as a result, police have become the default first responders for a wide range of social issues from mental illness to substance use to homelessness and poverty. Unfortunately, we know that just the presence of armed uniformed officers can escalate crisis situations particularly in communities of color where relationships with police are often characterized by distrust. And SAMHSA crisis care guidelines describe this dynamic where police serve as de facto first responders to these kinds of calls as unacceptable and unsafe. So to share more background on this racial disparities piece, uh, while there are research gaps in terms of looking at race equity in crisis response, we do see clear disparities across criminal justice and behavioral health. Communities of color have less access to mental health services than white people, and the services they do access are often of poor quality. Meanwhile, people of color are disproportionately arrested, especially for low-level offenses. This has been true for decades, even as arrests overall have declined. People of color are also disproportionately incarcerated, but less likely to be identified as having a mental health problem, jeopardizing their access to needed treatment once incarcerated. And, and these disparities can stem from the mental health screening process itself. So, um, that process often looks at prior service utilization, even though people of color may have previously experienced greater barriers to accessing services. So, these kinds of disparities can compound in that way. Um, and racial disparities are particularly evident when we look at low level offenses, which often involve unmet behavioral health needs. Although the number of arrests for these offenses has declined over the last couple of decades, significant racial disparities persist. For example, black people are nearly three times more likely to be arrested for disorderly conduct. We also know these are the kinds of offenses people are often arrested for when underlying behavioral health issues aren't addressed. And we're all here because of shared commitment to diverting people with underlying behavioral health challenges. And so I I raise these issues as we think about who's being diverted and some of the opportunities we have to promote equity in this work. So the opportunity we have with some of the programs I'm talking about today is huge, I think. Uh, We've seen increasing demand for systemic change that acknowledges the potential harms of relying on police-only approaches, including unnecessary arrests and incarceration that are disproportionately shouldered by Black communities and other communities of color. Um, We're also seeing new funding opportunities to develop more robust crisis services from American Rescue Plan funding um, to funds generated by fees states can put in place for 988 implementation. Uh, The new emergency number for suicide and mental health crises set to launch in July. And although the expansion of civilian crisis response programs synced with 911 systems is relatively new, An increasing number of communities are demonstrating how to navigate the planning implementation and evaluation of these approaches. Uh, So briefly this is a typology we developed at Vera to uh, briefly and and simply categorize different types of responses according to varying degrees of police involvement. Of, Of course communities may pursue multiple crisis response approaches simultaneously to address various problems in a range of crisis situations And what's available in communities across the country is often the product of what we have funded over the years, in many cases trying to solve health and social problems with policing. Uh, And this presentation really focuses on the right side of the spectrum and the role police departments and 911 operators can play in making these approaches more widely available. Uh, So zooming out a little bit across the country, jurisdictions have started launching civilian response programs that answer 911 calls involving behavioral health crises without police. Of course, I put Albuquerque uh, as one uh, jurisdiction on this list. And um, a number of these cities are still in the pilot phase, but clearly on an expansion track. Many more jurisdictions are in the midst of planning civilian crisis response approaches like this. Um, And by no means is this an exhaustive list. Other communities are either actively investing in civilian crisis responses as an alternative to police or engage in early dialogue about what this work will look like given their local context. So before I share deeper dives into our reports case studies as well as a few other examples, I just want to underscore that there's no one size fits all approach to this work. Um, All programs ultimately will need to identify gaps in existing community-based services and responses, including the skills and experiences needed to address frequent call types Uh, They'll need to look at different funding sources available to them and then um, often create new collaborations or enhance existing collaborations to make some of this work happen. So with that in mind, I'll move into our first study, which is CAHOOTS, a program I'm sure many of you are already familiar with at this point. Um, The CAHOOTS program in Eugene, Oregon, is one of the pioneering programs to reduce police involvement in crisis calls CAHOOTS sends teams of medics and crisis workers to behavioral health related 911 and non-emergency calls, typically without police involvement. CAHOOTS has a few clinicians on staff, but the crisis workers typically aren't licensed clinicians. Instead, they bring some previous crisis experience to their roles, including lived experience, and they receive receive extensive training, um, both didactic classroom training and then hundreds of hours of field training as part of that. Um, And some of that training involves working with um, other public safety partners as well. Um, CAHOOTS has been funded through the police department budget for 30 years, and the police have contracted with the Whitebird Clinic, which is a community-based organization with a long history of serving Eugene residents with unmet behavioral health needs. While some communities are launching city-run programs that are embedded in city agencies, CAHOOTS has always operated with, but also outside of city government. And Although CAHOOTS has some autonomy as a contractor, it is part of the same public safety ecosystem, ultimately, as Eugene police, and they reach people in crisis through the city's public safety communications infrastructure, so CAHOOTS staff carry police radios and dispatchers request them through a special channel. Police can also request CAHOOTS backup when a scene might benefit from their skill set. In rare cases, CAHOOTS calls for police backup. CAHOOTS services are entirely voluntary. So one example of this happening would be when someone is too intoxicated to consent to transportation to a sobering center. Uh, But in 2019, CAHOOTS was dispatched to roughly 17% of the 911 center's calls. And for under 2% of these situations, they actually requested police backup. Uh, Moving on to Olympia, Washington, this is an example that, at this point is relatively old compared to, or when you consider how um, young most of these programs are, although still just a a few years old at this point. Um, Olympia Washington's crisis response unit, CRU was one of the first programs to launch with an approach very similar to Kudut's. CRU is staffed by teams of behavioral health specialists with a range of crisis-related skills and experiences, although they are not master's level clinicians. More recently, Olympia's Staffing Plan for Crisis Response have added, has added a nurse to address low-level medical needs and a designated crisis responder, also known as a DCR. So while CRU's services are entirely voluntary, the DCR is a licensed clinician who can come in and assess people in crisis and decide whether they should receive involuntary treatment. Crews' existence is rooted in the 2017 passage of a public safety levy that included funds for improved crisis response the program manager leading planning for crew works closely with officers and 911 operators to determine how calls would be dispatched to crew. And they also heard from community organizations serving on house residents who said they didn't want to call 911. So, crew initially let some people call them directly, but eventually their call volume was so high they decided to only take calls coming through the emergency communication system. So uh, CREW launched in 2019, and similar to CAHOOTS, CREW was initially run by a behavioral health organization that contracted with the police, but to promote pay equity for CREW staff and potentially benefit from shared city resources. Olympia has recently made CREW staff city employees. And just briefly, Familiar Faces is another part of Olympia's layered approach to crisis response, and it's a program that emerged against the backdrop of a rapidly growing houseless population in the downtown Olympia area. And the program pairs peer navigators with community members who come to the attention of emergency services most frequently. The program aims to help community members connect with the supports they need to thrive and ultimately prevent repeated crises. And this was also, or rather, this was initially grant funded. but Olympia has approved more stable funding for familiar faces, and the peers are now also city employees like Peru. So at this point, Olympia has this layered approach that is entirely operated by the city, and all these employees are city staff, which is a bit different from how they initially launched the program. So this third case study is, is a bit different and is focusing more on the 911 diversion piece of this work. Um, The challenge in Phoenix was ensuring that 911 callers could access existing community-based crisis services. As some of you might know, uh, Phoenix and Arizona benefit from this really robust crisis system that has roots in a decades-long class action lawsuit. Um, They've been able to pay for um, extensive crisis services. that include um, strong collaborations between law enforcement and behavioral health partners and no wrong door crisis facilities to take people um, for facilitating warm-up handoffs with officers who might have someone who could even be uh, like perceived as especially agitated or might be dealing with a substance use crisis as well. And they're still able to take all these cases because they've just developed these uh, robust services um, so that's the context for this work, but um, one Phoenix advocate was explaining to us, many people are just unaware of Phoenix's crisis line and the mobile teams that can send uh, when they're needed. So they still turn to 911 during the crisis because that's the number that people know. And it was important for 911 operators to be able to identify when calls had a mental health nexus and were eligible for referral to the crisis line. However, some call takers were concerned about personal liability and weren't fully aware of what the crisis line could do. Um, The police department brought in crisis line specialists ultimately to help train on these issues. Um, And just quickly to clarify, the 911 dispatch center in Phoenix is overseen by the police department. Um, So they brought in crisis line specialists to help train the operators on these issues. And uh, we heard during our interviews with local stakeholders that even veteran dispatchers learned there were calls the crisis line could take that they just didn't know about before. Uh, These efforts in Phoenix underline the central role that cultivating a culture of 911 call diversion plays in this work, as well as the value of sustained engagement with 911 operators around diversion and existing crisis services. And since we published our report, Phoenix has placed a new dispatch supervisor in the 911 center 20 hours a week, and they introduced a new formal policy that directs 911 operators to transfer eligible calls to the crisis line. And Phoenix has seen a significant increase in the number of calls identified as having a mental health component and the number of transferred to the crisis line where a specialist can triage the call and send a mobile team as needed. So that training and collaboration has changed ultimately the experience of the caller who might not know that the crisis line is available to them. So sometimes 911 operators just have to play that role of getting them in the right, or pushing them in the right direction. And uh, here briefly, you can see the increase in call diversions when Phoenix trained um, and later retrained their 911 operators on these topics. So I am just going to run through a handful of additional examples that weren't covered extensively in our report, but I think just show you the the breadth of these programs and and just how much we've seen take shape over the last year since our report was published. Um, So Denver, Colorado is an interesting example. STAR, the Support Team Assisted Response Program launched in June, 2020, and it's staffed by teams of medics and licensed clinicians, in contrast with Eugene and Olympia, which, which don't typically use licensed clinicians. And of the 1,400 calls STAR answered in its first year, none led to injuries, arrests, or calls for police backup. STAR's creation is rooted in community demands for an alternative response beyond the city's co-responder program, which launched in 2016. In 2018, voters passed the Caring for Denver ballot initiative, which involved a sales tax increase to fund new behavioral health initiatives. And in 2019, a delegation of providers and advocates visited Eugene to learn more about CAHOOTS and consider how Denver could implement a similar approach. So against this backdrop, the Caring for Denver Fund from the ballot initiative set aside a couple hundred thousand dollars for that initial star pilot, which launched in summer 2020, actually. And um, the pilot was staffed by the same behavioral health organization that had previously partnered with the police department for its co-responder program. So these partners had a history of working together, and I've I've heard that credited as, as something that helps them um, launch pretty seamlessly, and uh, just having that history together. But as Star is set to expand with support from Denver's General Fund, some advocates have demanded greater community control, and so there these conversations are happening locally around ways to send um, different kinds of responders to serve the diverse community and, and meet different people where they are, because um, just be, because there's there, there's a feeling like um, there are existing organizations um, that have a history of doing some of this crisis response work informally and without funding. So um, there has been that recent push to change some of how the program is structured. So uh, moving on to Rochester, New York, um, The PIC, or person in crisis team, dispatches two-person teams of various behavioral health professionals, including licensed social workers, to eligible calls coming through 911. And one thing that's interesting, I think, about this approach is local leaders have also encouraged community members to call 211, the regional crisis line, as another way to reach uh, person in crisis teams. One thing that's notable about PIC also is that as of last year, the program was staffed primarily by clinicians of color and Rochester is um, is a community with um, a very di- racially and ethnically diverse population, so that was intentional on the program's part. City residency was also a prerequisite for hiring with the idea that familiarity and comfort navigating the streets of Rochester could be beneficial. and. Uh, to step back a bit, as some of you may know, Daniel Prud a Black resident of Rochester who was experiencing a behavioral health crisis, died in 2020 after his encounter with police. Um, and there was widespread demand for an alternative response beyond the county's existing secondary response program known as the Forensic Intervention Team. That program supported police with some responses, but would never respond without police. Um, and, and that's what um, community members were really asking for. So after a 90-day task force, the PIC team pretty rapidly launched out of the Department of Recreation and Human Services. Um, and while they could respond to calls without police, they were dispatched to a very narrow set of calls and they actually hadn't developed co-response protocols initially. Um, so um, there, there was some frustration because community members were finding that the PIC team wasn't present for a lot of situations where they thought that their expertise could be valuable, or where or where officers wanted and, and asked for that kind of support. Um, so um, more recently, they've introduced um, those co-response protocols, and there are also conversations happening now about integrating peers into the crisis response strategy, and um, even taking on new call types that alternative responders can answer. So. Um, This is the last program I'll highlight and it it hasn't really started yet, but I think um, interesting things are are in the works. So I I just thought I'd shout them out. Um, There's a lot to look at here. Just want to briefly mention that Dayton is working toward an interesting strategy that would involve triaging 911 calls with a couple different alternative response options. One of these options would be transferring the call to the county crisis call center, which would then send mobile crisis units as needed. Um, so, you know, that that's a more like traditional behavioral health crisis situation. Um, the other option would be sending a team with mediation experience to calls that aren't fundamentally defined by a behavioral health challenge. And that fundamentally defines, that's, that's the language that they're using as they think about what this 911 triage would look like. But it's interesting and kind of novel as we think about um, the, the landscape of civilian response programs we're seeing um, that the community is looking at two potential alternative response approaches. Um, so finally, just to wrap up and give you additional research my team is working on in this area, GEAR uh, is developing guidance to help communities promote equity in crisis response programs across planning, implementation, and evaluation. And the idea is to take a term equity that can be like pretty abstract and hard to really like work with in practical terms and make it a bit more practical and offer some guidance in that area. So it's exploring questions like what are programs currently doing to account for race equity? What are the different decision-making points that may produce inequities and how do we address those? How do communities use data to ensure that they have a clear grasp of disparities across criminal justice and behavioral health? and then some of the challenges and opportunities uh, they face in measuring and addressing disparities. Um, So wrapping up, I've included a number of references and resources here. Um, I believe you all will get the slide deck if you're interested. Um, So I will stop there. Thank you so much. And looking forward to uh, any questions.